You're listening to the Center for Auto Safety podcast with Executive Director Michael Brooks, Chief Engineer Fred Perkins, and hosted by Anthony Simino. For over 50 years, the Center for Auto Safety has been working to make cars safer. Find out more at autosafety.org. So good, good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, world. Good morning to the both of you and good afternoon to our listeners. Good evening. Guten Tagen. I don't know what that means, really. Uh, I think we have to get into the follow-up to a subject we've discussed in the past, which is the right to repair. Oh, wait, before we even start that, guys, guys, I mean, do you know what this is? Do you know what today is? What is today? Uh, uh, yeah, today is the first day of summer, longest longest daylight of the year. Uh, well, oh. That's not what I was going for. I was. It's going all for downhill from here. This is episode 5252. One year ago today, we started this. We're, we're applauding, but I think Zoom's cutting off some of those sounds. Um, hey, so congratulations to you two, to me, and to our listeners. Without you, we'd be just three people talking into the ether. But anyway, let's go into some excitement. The right to repair law. We've discussed this before. This is the basically uh, manufacturers of every devices from your phones to your car have locked them into these sealed boxes and you can't fix them uh, without paying some exorbitant fees. And the state of Massachusetts was the first state to say, hey, we're going to mandate a law. If you're going to sell products in the state of Massachusetts, you have to have it so that people can repair things on their own. With auto manufacturers, that's making it so independent repair shops, separate from your dealers, can go ahead and fix your car. So as a consumer, you're not locked into going back to your dealer every time there's a problem. And the dealer basically saying, hey, there's no competition. We're going to charge whatever we want. We're not going to tell you what's going on. So we view this, obviously, as a very good thing. It's great for consumers. Um, it's good for privacy rights. It's good for a whole host of reasons. So Massachusetts passes this law. And then a little organization called NHTSA does something, which is rare that it seems to do anything at all. And they just say, no which is mind-blowing to me. Michael? Well, it's, you know, it, it, NHTSA warned Massachusetts, or at least filed, I believe it was a brief of some sort, about three years ago, right after the law was uh, either passed or proposed, saying, you know, this this is going to, we're going to have problems here. Um, and Massachusetts went ahead with it. Uh, and now NHTSA is saying, basically, you're preempted. What that means basically is that the feds are the only folks who can regulate vehicle safety. And it's a saying because the Massachusetts law required open remote access to vehicle data, even though the law specified that data transmissions needed to be secure, um, that it violates the safety act but because you know it basically massachusetts is proposing that every manufacturer selling a vehicle in the state have a standardized data platform that consumers can access which if you follow the podcast you know standardizing anything across the auto industry is something they don't like they like to have their own silos they like to monetize their own product they don't like cooperating with other manufacturers to produce 
vehicles, vehicle systems that are standardized across the the industry. Um, and I think that, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack here. Right to repair, we think is super important, but also, you know, there is a competing concern involving cybersecurity. You know, anytime you're granting one group remote access or open access to their data, it basically opens up a door where bad guys can get through. Um, and this is saying basically here, you know, that that is our prerogative to regulate in that area. And when and if we ever do, um, which is a concern here, because we don't see NHTSA moving on cybersecurity at all, even in the midst of probably the largest theft crisis we've seen uh, in American history with the Hyundai Kia TikTok stuff, they don't seem to think it's within their purview. We differ on that. Um, but they're saying, you know, Massachusetts, you can't do this. You are preempted under federal law from being able to force manufacturers to uh make this make this data available to consumers in Massachusetts. Um, Let me understand this for a second. So yeah. doesn't think it's their purview in the Hyundai Kia theft issues with cybersecurity there. But in this case, where it gives consumers access to information and competing services, they say, nope, this is we say, no, you can't do this. That's right. I think it's, you know, a lot of the, you know, the manufacturers are going to object to right to repair no matter what, um, because they want to, you know, they want to monetize everything they can. And as we've seen, subscriptions are rising significantly in these vehicles and, and they want even more control than, I mean, they want to control whether or not you can turn on your seat heater um, and all these little creature comforts that they're going to start charging you for monthly. So NHTSA is basically... You know, they think there's serious safety risks that are posed by this law. Um, and, you know, some, even, you know, Congress, you know, Senator Markey, uh, Senator Warren have come out along with a number of others and said, you know, what are you doing? You're undermining state law. You, um, you know, this is a good thing for consumers. And this is supposed to be on the side of the consumer. Um, although we, you know, disagree with that from time to time. So, it's I think that the Massachusetts law could have been crafted in a way that could have allowed for consumers to have access to their data, could have allowed independent repair shops access to their data with consumers permission. But that, you know, that that's this is a this was a ballot measure. You know, this wasn't a a, a law that went through, you know, a lot of scrutiny and the legislator and staffers and had input from all sorts of stakeholders. It was basically a law that was voted on by the people of Massachusetts. And, uh, you know, I'm still not quite sure who wrote it, but I think they could have crafted it in a way that pacified NHTSA while still getting consumers and independent repair shops the, the things they needed. And I've even seen a few state late legislators in Massachusetts suggest that that's what they're planning to do now is to go back and, and make the law. I, probably, I don't know if it would weaken it in some ways. I mean, essentially they're trying to both guarantee that consumers and independent repair shops have access to this data, can keep their repair costs down, and at the same time ensure that it's a cyber secure system that doesn't pose any safety risks. So 
I don't think that's easy to do. I don't think it's easy to craft legislation around cybersecurity, around some of these things, because there are some really technical issues that have to be addressed by, you know, experts at NHTSA and elsewhere. And, you know, congressmen and senators are not cybersecurity experts. So what? Yeah, it's, well, it's, uh, if I may point out, as a citizen of Massachusetts, that we do have a couple of um, higher education institutions in Massachusetts, like MIT and Harvard, that uh, provide ready access to our legislators to get the assistance they need on drafting such legislation. That would probably be preferable to citizens dressing up as Aboriginal residents of this continent and throwing regulations into the Boston Harbor. But, you know, that's an option, too. Well played. <laughs> okay, so uh, it's a, basically they write a letter to all of the general counsels of every manufacturer saying, hey, the citizens of the state of Massachusetts voted for this. They use this little thing called democracy and representation, representative government. And we're saying, nah, can't do it. Is this is this the, the deep state? Is this the deep state doing this? Is that what's happening? This is the Bay State. Oh, it's the Bay State. Sorry. Well, the, 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 the Bay can be deep in sections. So as part of this, uh, both what was it Subaru and... Um, so we have an article we're linking to from MSN, and I'm going to quote from this for a little bit. So this talks about a retired attorney who uh, waited to buy a 2023 Subaru Crosstech Trek um, because they wanted uh, updated security features, uh, safety features, sorry, uh, safety features, something called Subaru Starlink, which is a subscription package of digital services that include a feature to automatically call first responders in the event of a crash. And so, uh, but... Quoting from the article, but when she tried to activate the Starlink system, nothing happened. After multiple phone calls to Subaru, she recalled, somebody at tech support said to me, why are you bothering if you're in Massachusetts? Uh, so basically, Subaru and Kia since 2021 have basically refused to turn on Starlink. They refused these telematic systems because... They know this stuff was going to get overturned or they are actually sorry. They knew that Massachusetts was going for this right to repair. So they said, hey, we're not even going to turn this on because we don't want people to have, right. have access to the stuff. I mean, functionally, they were saying, you know, since the law hinges on telematics being available in the vehicle, telematics being the whatever communication the vehicle uses uh, to talk to home base then they aren't triggering the Massachusetts law. And so they wouldn't be covered. So they said, okay, well, what we'll do is just go ahead and, you know, remove access to these systems for vehicles that are sold to Massachusetts consumers, which is a pretty draconian way to pursue things. I think particularly when, you know, and, and regrettably in this case, I think because they removed automatic crash notification from those vehicles, which Frankly, we think should not be, you know, one a, a, a subscription type service, and some manufacturers are offering it. That I don't know if Kia or, or Subaru were here, but you know, they are taking away a safety feature in those vehicles, and they're doing it without even notifying customers. Apparently, at least the the the, the owner that was in the article. So that's a huge problem, and you know. It, the other manufacturers did not do this. I think they basically, you know, 
judging by the fact that Nitsa was saying three years ago that this probably wasn't going to fly, they were putting all their bets on that corner, that Nitsa preemption. Um, so uh, I don't, you know, that that's just one small part and, and one small loss in this whole process for consumers or the folks who do have Subaru and Kias that are now not able to access their telematic systems. But, you know, I think overall what we're looking at here is just, it's kind of the typical behavior pattern of the auto industry. You know, they, they, they'll scream about hackers now when there's a bill in a state or a law in a state that's forcing them to do a certain thing, but they're also going to continue to be in DC lobbying against a federal right to repair law that would address some of the issues they had in Massachusetts. They'll be lobbying against NHTSA, putting out cybersecurity regulations, and they're going to keep building cars with, you know, hundreds of CAN buses on them that are not cyber secure and, and open to hackers, as we've talked about many times here. So I think the, the real lesson here is that ultimately, you know, big auto doesn't want anyone telling them what to do, no matter what it is, you know, be cyber secure, don't be cyber secure. Don't tell us what to do. We'll take care of us. Just trust us. So, you know, this is very similar to the way they're lobbying states and feds and, you know, on autonomous vehicles. They're basically saying, hey, San Francisco and Seattle and places that, you know, actually have these vehicles on their streets in the in the locality. You can't do anything about it. We're going to take this over your head to the state and we're going to pass some law with, you know, antiquated definitions of operating design domain and other things that are favorable to us. And then at the same time, we're going to go to the feds and we're going to try to get you put out of the loop by preempting state law, which is exactly what they're doing at the federal level. So while at the same time, mind you, they're trying to remove consumer access to justice with binding arbitration that takes the courts out of the uh, system. So really, you know, this is just typical auto industry. We don't want anybody telling us what to do. We're going to fight something in one state and another and another. Whether our positions are inconsistent, we don't care as long as we come out on top. Mm. Let me let me inject a couple things. Uh, Michael talked about the CAN bus. CAN bus is a controller area network uh, electronic bus that lets microcontrollers and devices communicate with each other. But because cars have so many different microprocessors, uh, they need to talk in some way. The CAN bus was designed for things like elevators and escalators, uh, areas that, that don't really have the need for high-speed secure communications like a car does. So just by mentioning the, the CAN bus, there's a lot implied in that about inadequate design of vehicles. It's in, inherently insecure. Uh, it cannot be made secure because of the way it's designed. So uh, just wanted to throw that in. I also wanted to throw in that this whole EyeSight system and this, this system in the Subarus is an odd duck. I happen to own a Subaru, and um, I've never paid for this. This is a subscription service. Uh, since I have an iPhone, it never seemed important to own to to sign up with that system and even though i <laughs> even though i never subscribe to it i get a message from my local dealer whenever my uh windshield washer fluid gets low but i should bring the car in for service really? so 
Yeah, so it's implemented by default to lure me into the Subaru dealer for service, even though I've never paid for it. It's a very, very odd duck. Yeah, my car every 10,000 miles says, got to go to the dealer. Got it. You need service. You need service. Um, but back to this right to repair. So they say, th I think the cybersecurity angle that the manufacturers and NITs are talking about is a red herring. By the way, red herring, a little sour cream on a blintz, it sounds delicious. Uh, because saying, oh, we don't, we have to figure out the whole cybersecurity issue with that. We have to figure out all this stuff. That's like, saying remote like fobless or keyless fob entries oh we have to figure out all this they didn't figure out the security around all this stuff it works you can get in there um it's with it, it, cybersecurity being a constant moving target as we all know from our computers i mean it's you're never going to be able to legislate hey this is how we have to make things secure because what we know today to make something secure is not what we know tomorrow because things will keep changing. There'll be new loopholes. There'll be new ways in. I think it's, um, uh, I think it's setting out an impossible task that is, uh, will never be defined. Yeah. And I, I wonder also, you know, Massachusetts went about it by specifying that the manufacturer, the, the thing they hate is getting together and doing a standardized data access platform. And, and, you know, I've always wondered if maybe the standardized data access platform across all manufacturers isn't maybe less cyber secure than having you know multiple systems operating um so you don't have one big target sitting there but you know that's i'm not a cyber security expert at this moment but you dress like one uh so for our listeners in massachusetts you know, contact your Congress people and yell at them. Be like, hey, don't give in to NHTSA. Don't give in to these people. Like, really push back on this. And for everybody out, everybody else in the country, you know, let your Congress people know, hey, this is a good idea. I don't want to keep overpaying and being, I don't want my car to tell me when I have to get service for windshield washer fluid. Because, look, I'm not automotively inclined, but even I could top off windshield wiper fluid. Um Probably. Yeah. Oh, Michael's giving me a slight nod. Like he could probably do it. Friends I think so. Stoic, like yeah, not a chance. Uh, oh, Fred's talking, but he's muted himself. Uh, Sorry. Ready. I just wanted to offer my free support to those people who are going to march on Boston Harbor to throw regulations in the water. So if anyone uh, give, needs give fences us, cut to make it into the Harbor, he'll be there for you. Give <laughs> us a note. We can take the, we can take the MTA and get right in there. Excellent. Uh, Let's move on to Mercedes and level three driving. How do we like that? So level three driving, uh, this is where you can stop paying attention to driving, maybe, perhaps, and the car drives itself, except at some last split minute, split second thing where the car doesn't know what's happening and you have to immediately sober up and take control of the vehicle. It's a silly, dangerous, dumb, idea that we've discussed in the past, but the California Department of Motor Vehicles has approved Mercedes-Benz's automated driving system on designated highways under certain conditions without the active control of a driver. What this means is if you're on the road with a Mercedes that's in level three driving mode, you are a guinea pig and you don't even know it. What a well, world we live in. Well, this one's... um we've there's kind of a gap here between you know the vehicles we're driving now and the avs the autonomous vehicles we talk about there's um 
you know, a middle and and automotive news talked about it this week in their article, a mushy middle, they call it, where drivers are supposed to take over vehicles that are operating semi-autonomously. Um, and there's all sorts of problems with that. Um, when you talk about it broadly here, I think there's a very specific set of circumstances in which the Mercedes drive pilot is operating. It's on freeways or divided access highways when there's traffic that's slowing the whole highway down to speeds below 40 miles per hour or so. So it's a a very narrow window in which the approvals in California and Nevada have been um, given to them. We, you know, I think it's pretty obvious why they're, they're having to get limited approvals because, you know, the, the, a lot of companies have abandoned even trying level three tech. Um, I think Google was one of the first when they were, they started out their whole autonomous Waymo adventure um, looking into level three where drivers were going to be taking over vehicles. And they found just by observing their test drivers that it's a serious problem. There's all sorts of complacency that occurs that they didn't anticipate and drivers simply aren't able to safely retake control of the vehicle when alerted um, all the time. And, you know, that's a big problem in this, in the 40 mile per hour and under scenario on an interstate and traffic where you're functionally, you know, your car is operating in basically an advanced cruise control mode and, and kind of following the vehicles in front of it. Um, you know, I could see this tech working ultimately and, and maybe not posing a problem, but right now, I just don't think we have these studies and the research to back it up. And we know people are going to do stupid things in these vehicles while they're in traffic. I think, you know, that it's inevitable. I mean, the, the foreseeable misuse of all these systems is pretty clear. And it's something that manufacturer, manufacturers should be addressing before they put the tech on the roads and not afterwards by blaming owners and consumers in court. Um, which is, you know, the Tesla model that's going on right before our eyes now. So there's still a lot to be done here. You know, I think in, in one of the articles I was reading on, you know, I think Volvo and Audi, you know, started down this path and then said, whoa, whoa, there's some serious problems here to the point where they just pulled out completely. So it's something that a lot of manufacturers have shied away from. Mercedes seems to be diving in, but at a relatively slow pace, given the circumstances that this feature is limited to, they've run around touting themselves as the first level three, which is a little silly when, you know, you consider that they're only approved for this very narrow set of circumstances that, um, you know, probably Anthony's Toyota could handle to some extent right now with adaptive cruise or something like that. So yeah. we'll see how this develops. I, I don't, you know, I don't know if the future is in level three. I'm not sure if humans can be trusted to operate it. Michael, I need to ask you a question here. Yes. So you're in a vehicle. It's level three approved. You're in traffic and uh, the car is doing its thing. You're picking your nose and reading a book and drinking coffee all at the same time. All of a sudden, your car is in a crash. You report the crash to the insurance company. And you say, oh, yeah, well, I was picking my nose, drinking coffee and reading a book all at the same time. The car was driving itself. The insurance company says, 
Guess who's liable for this? Not the car. You are, my friend. You are no longer insured. What do you think about that? Is that a what position would the insurance company take in that situation? Well, I think the insurance company would probably take that position because it's easier than uh, them going after Mercedes for the problem. <laughs> Your pockets <laughs> but, aren't as deep as Mercedes. It's surprising. Um, and we've seen, you know, some of the. Uh, autonomous vehicles the the fully automated or you know level four types that are being tested right now and you know and carrying passengers in some places we've seen them you know support language that says you know if there's a crash that is the fault of the vehicle we're going to take responsibility for that you don't see that from mercedes and we're not seeing that from these level three systems there's a really it's not just a mushy middle from the perspective of it could be unsafe. It's a mushy middle because we really don't have law in America that's been formed around this topic. And, you know, we're seeing situations where consumers are, are being could be charged with manslaughter. There's criminal potential criminal liability here, in addition to simply replacing the car and dealing with your insurance. Um, so, yes, this is an area where that is fraught with kind of legal uncertainty and consumers using this technology are not only safety guinea pigs, they're legal guinea pigs because they're going to be the first to find out what the drawbacks are uh, when it comes to crashes that happen when, when level three is, you know, when, when they're using level three to basically give themselves some free time and traffic. So let me ask you for your opinion, Anthony. Sure. Do you think that the Mercedes salespeople are carefully informing their customers of the potential liabilities and safety hazards associated with level three operation in their brand new $100,000 vehicle? Look, when I was shopping for my brand new Mercedes EQS the other day, um, we didn't discuss those things. We didn't even discuss cars. Instead, we spent a lot of time discussing um, watches and Fabergé eggs and laughing oh. at the poor as they looked inside with their dirty faces pressed up against the glass. And <laughs> we threw beignets at them um, because beignets are something the poor would eat, but they couldn't get them because their face was stuck against. No, no the answer is no. So, wow. but, but that's all factual. I was asking your opinion. Oh, oh, my opinion. No, I don't, I don't, I do not imagine the salespeople even know these things, but in these article from automotive news, which I don't think we can link to because it's a, pay subscription thing, but there's a good quote from friend of the show and Carnegie Mellon University professor Phil Copen. He says, early adopters are putting themselves at risk of criminal prosecution if the computer makes a mistake, even if they're using it as directed. Wow. Okay, so I mean, what other consumer products can you have that you can go out and buy, you use it as directed, and then it kills somebody and you're like, oh, I guess a handgun. I guess well, you've also got a quote here from Brian Reimer from my home state, uh, research scientist at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Quote, an engineer's dream and a plaintiff attorney's next yacht, close quote. I, I, I like that. I like that, too. And, and Michael, is, it's not too late for you to become a plaintiff attorney because I would like to be on a yacht. You know, I... I, I... I, I like that quote. I'm not sure how accurate it is because, you know, right now, the way these cases are ha have gone, 
the, you know, the jury in California just found against someone who was using autopilot and got into a crash. Um, well, that's Tesla's so, autopilot, which is only level two. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't think the levels really come into play here. I think there's something, you know, there's, there's, there's something in to the, I don't know, it, it, juries are going to be deciding this and, and maybe judges in some circumstances. And, there's a little aspersion cast, I think, on on folks who get into a car and hit a button and think the car's going to drive it for them because they have better things to do, I guess, um, and get in a crash and, and someone gets hurt. I mean, is, you know, Mercedes tech may not be working fully and may not have prevented the crash, but at the same time, you had someone that made a choice not to drive the vehicle and perhaps not to pay full attention as they should have. Um, so I, I, I think this is an area that's just, it's, it, there may not be any yachts for, for quite a number of years. Uh, if, if it stays as complex and, you know, it, every state is going to have to work this out in its own law as well. So there's just a lot going on here that's going to develop as these vehicles come on the road. I'm not even sure if Mercedes has actually deployed this yet or if they're just getting it uh, approved in Nevada and California right now. So it, you know, some of these issues have yet to arise. Before we move on to the tower, Fred, I want to uh, correct something I just said. I did not, I was being facetious when I was casting aspersions at beignets. I think beignets are delicious. And at least two of the three members of this podcast would agree that fried dough is incredible. Moving on to the Tao of Fred, where Fred is going to continue on more on level three and explain really what level three is from an engineering perspective and how ridiculous this is. So take it away. You've now entered Thank the you. Tao Thank of you, Fred. Anthony. Thanks for the introduction. I'm also going to bring in a pop quiz for oh. Michael and Anthony. So this will be fun. Um, Level three, according to the Department of Transportation, is conditional automation. Quote, the driving mode specific performance by an automated driving system of all aspects of the dynamic driving task with the expectation that the human driver will respond appropriately to a request to intervene. So th this is interesting um, and inadequate for a lot of reasons. First is that the last part of that phrase, it says the human driver will respond appropriately to a request to intervene. It's different than saying the human will respond appropriately when needed. Okay, so this is this. So you could have an emergency situation that requires your immediate response, but there's no request to intervene. So this falls outside of the realm of what level three actually says. So that's that's a very interesting position to be in. Uh, number two is that essentially it's it's like a pilot who is in an airplane and is using an autopilot, which all commercial airplanes do. Uh, autopilots sometimes fail and switch themselves off, and then the pilot has to take over. So many studies have shown that it takes anywhere between 15 to 30 seconds for a highly trained pilot to take over control of an aircraft when the autopilot switches off. Now, an airplane cruising at 30,000 feet 
will probably be in a comfortable environment even after 15 seconds. They generally don't just flip over and do terrible things. They tend to drift basically from their level operating condition to some other operating condition, but they don't vary too much. So you've got plenty of time typically to take over when the autopilot takes over and you can get it back on, switch it off, fly it manually, whatever you need to do. Well, in a car traveling at 60 miles an hour, you're traveling at 88 feet per second. You are about two feet away from the vehicle next to you. And in, we'll say 30 seconds, which is half a minute, you can travel many hundreds of feet, about, a, you know, maybe thousands, actually half a mile you can travel um, before you can effectively take over control of the vehicle if you are, in fact, a highly trained and alert user. Uh, this is inherently hazardous. And this also assumes, once again, that the vehicle has detected that there's a critical situation and that it's going to direct you to take over. Now, it happens, I had an experience last week, which bears on this. I was traveling at 60 miles an hour on the Taconic State Parkway when a deer decided to cross the road, uh, as deer will, without uh, much consideration for oncoming traffic. And uh, I looked up one moment and saw a deer's head in midair, and the next moment I saw a cracked windshield and... Uh, did a did a lot of damage to my car. So what did I do? Well, first of all, is I already had my hands on the wheel. So I puckered up a little bit, grabbed the wheel, and uh, steered off the highway onto the shoulder so I could assess damage and you know do the things you do after something like that. Um, within milliseconds of contact, my eyesight system in my Subaru, which we discussed earlier, uh, became inoperable. Now, the eyesight has two cameras, and the vehicle is equipped so that it can use these two cameras to gauge distances to other objects, can perform a lot of automatic driving functions, steers left and right, controls speed forward and aft. So longitudinal and lateral control, which is you know a lot, a lot of saying, automatic driving functions in the car. Within milliseconds, all of the sensors were disabled. The rear view camera actually, or, or <laughs> rear view mirror actually came flying off the windshield and the entire windshield was smashed as my background here for my colleagues who are enjoying my video background can attest, immediately became inoperable. So if I'm in an automatic driving car, I'm picking my nose, reading a book and drinking coffee all at the same time, all of a sudden, this happens, the car can no longer steer itself because it no longer has any sensors. It's traveling at 88 feet per second or going a half a mile every 30 seconds, and uh, it's out of control. This is a very, very hazardous situation, and deer strikes are common. Uh, collisions are fairly common around the country. The New York State's Taconic State Parkway, where I was driving, seems to be paved with deer carcasses, which I realized after the fact should have alerted me. So I, I do have a personal relationship with this particular uh, automation driving level, and I think it's incredibly stupid and hazardous for any company to put level three automation on the highway 
with any kind of assertion that it's safe, um, well, that it's, that it's safe to use. I want to reemphasize, there is no evidence anywhere in the world that any self-driving vehicle is as safe as a human, much less safer than a human being. So I, I think this level three is going to kill a lot of people. Fortunately, um, my level two and a half or whatever it is on the Subaru did not kill me. Uh, from that perspective, I was, I was very lucky. And it's really what I've got to say about level three. I think it's a bad idea. If it's, if it becomes popular, it's a bad idea whose time has come. That happens sometimes. Um, I'm not a fan and. I hope that really this just drops out of the market because people are astute enough to realize it's just putting them in a way of danger. I, I think your example highlights problems with level three, level four, level five, and everything is um, all of those progressively allow the driver to disengage. And deers will jump in front of cars. Um, they will disable all of these systems so level three and above they use cameras and radars and lidars to find out what's around them so a deer comes in disables those systems without a human driver there's no way to successfully steer that car off the road because it has no sense of where the road is you're right i I also want to point out that the deer pivoted around the side of the car at the moment of impact took out the uh passenger side rear view mirror on the outside of the vehicle that contains a camera which provides warning if there's a car coming up on the right uh, blind spot warning system also these are all associated with the lane keeping system in the car so all of those systems were instantly disabled when that contact occurred it's also important to point out that that's not just deer that caused this. There are wild turkeys. There are birds in the world. There are, you know, uh, unfortunate circumstances, people throwing bricks off of off of highways. And another thing I've experienced was a chalk block falling off a truck and impacting the windshield of my car a few years ago uh, before level three or before eyesight was even an issue. So, yeah, it's out there. I think the simple takeaway from this is don't drive with Fred. Uh, bad things happen when he's behind the wheel. Not saying it's your fault, but just saying the universe does not like you. Well, I've known that for a long, long time. Yeah, getting back to um, hot wiring. No, we won't get back to hot wiring <laughs> okay. cars. No, we won't do that. Uh, but yeah. Okay. I, so now, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, I, was, I was saying, I, I think I've mentioned previously on the show where I was driving my car through a blizzard. I mean, it just happened while we we're out on the road. It's a long trip. And then every single automated safety system just shut down. Radar disabled, automatic cruise control disabled, line lane keeping disabled. And these systems, yes, they'll be more advanced and everything will be better in the future. But they'll still be relying on these external systems that can be taken out by snow, by sleet, and by wild uh, about deer drinking wild turkey. Is that about right? Yeah, that sounds pretty good. Yeah, and in the future, everything will be better. We know that. Okay. But That's, we'll and, and speaking of everything in the future being better, the U.S. Department of Transportation put out a document a while back called Preparing for the Future of Transportation, Automated Vehicles 3.0. This Uh-oh. is still the official position of the Department of Transportation on automated vehicles. Now, there's a tragic event in the news right now 
about a submarine mm. that is uh, apparently out of control. Hopefully the people will survive, but it's a tragic situation in the North Atlantic. So what I've done in this spot in this pop quiz is I've looked at some of the statements in the Vision for Safety 3.0 by the Department of Transportation. Um, and I've looked at some of the statements associated with that uh, submarine. And I paraphrase it slightly to obscure the origin, but I'm going to ask you two gentlemen to identify which of the sources is associated with this. So either DOT or New York Times and OceanGate.com. All right? All right, I'm ready. My buzzer's warm. And whoever gets the most correct answers, Anthony, you please tally up the correct answers. Sure. We'll get a used hat that I'm wearing right now. It says the Berkshires, which is a very nice hat. Um, um, okay, so here's the first one. The industry hasn't innovated or grown because there were too many regulations. Innovative designs often require a multi-year approval process, which gets in the way of rapid innovation. Ocean. So, OceanGate or DOT? OceanGate. Yeah, that's the submersible. Yep. Yeah. All right. So here's, so you both because, win on that one? NHTSA, NHTSA would not be whining about regulations. Right. So here's... The auto industries would. I knew that one just because I sent it around to the two of you yesterday. So here's another one. Um, must modernize or eliminate outdated regulations that unnecessarily impede the development of the technology or do not address critical safety needs. I'm guessing that's on there with the yeah. modernization stuff. Right. That's I'm NHTSA. Not. I'm making it too obvious. Yes, that is NHTSA. Well, we paid attention to this show. All right. If you're playing at home, just pause after each question he asks. Sit down with your family and say, hey, how did our lives become this? It's because little Billy didn't do his homework. We could be at Disney World now. Instead, we're sitting around. Oh, sorry. Go on. All right. So here's one. Um, this technology applies the latest advances in material science and technology to meet its challenges. Uh, airbag manufacturers. That's right. Ocean Gate. That's Ocean Gate. Right. Um, and, but the right approach to achieving safety improvements begins with a focus on removing unnecessary barriers rather than regulations. Oh, um, I'm going to say Ocean Gate as well. I'm going to say Nitz on that one. The removing barriers thing just sounds like a haunting nightmare from my past. Split decision. That was Nitza. Mm. Yes. All right. Um, so let's see. Uh, oh, the adopted framework promotes the benefits of safe deployment while managing risk and provides clarity to the public regarding distinctions between various stages of testing and full development. It's about automated vehicles. Autonomous. I've got to do NHTSA there too. Yeah, I, I'm making this too easy. I thought it was going to be more difficult. Wow. We get no credit. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So anyway, Mr. Lockridge, who was the chief engineer at OceanGate, reported learning that the viewpoint the viewport that lets passengers see outside the craft is only certified to work in depths of 1,300 meters, far less than would be necessary for trips to the Titanic, which is nearly 4,000 meters below the ocean surface. That's not a question. That's just an aside. Mm. 
All right. So here's one. Um, last one. Last one. Reliance on self-certification approach instead of type approval more appropriately balances and promotes safety and innovation. That's NHTSA. I want to say that's both of them. <laughs> yeah, well, here, uh, so here's the, uh, it is NHTSA, but here's the quote from OceanGate. Because this Titan craft was so innovative, it could take years to get it certified by the usual assessment agencies. Bringing an outside entity up to speed on every innovation before it is put into real-world testing is anathema to rapid innovation. So I, I, I hope I've made my point. There's a lot of parallels between the disaster that's taking place in the North Atlantic and the guidance being provided by NHTSA for people who are developing self-driving vehicles, including the level three that we were just discussing. Mm. Well, uh, final score, Michael plus 17, Anthony plus two, because he doesn't want that. So, hey, Michael, congratulations. You're the winner. Thank you. That, that Look is forward to, I'm wearing it right now, but uh, yeah. I'll, I'll show it to you after the it show. With, it comes with that new Fred smell. I also <laughs> learned the difference between a submarine and a submersible. So a submarine is like a level one or two vehicle where the people in the submarine have control. What they're in is a submersible where they basically have one button, a video screen, and they're being controlled from from above. I'm I'm assuming so. Um, that was no, they're not. They only have limited uh, limited engagement limited from above. Yeah, so they can text back and forth from limited uh, depths, but but not all the way down. Yeah. Oh, uh, horrible. Hopefully, um, it resolves. Well, what a, I, I'd be terrified being in a submarine under any case. My heart goes out to these poor people. Speaking of uh, being terrified, it's time for the recall roundup. Strap in. Time for the recall roundup. Transition. This week, we're going to start off with our favorite target friend of the show, Tesla. Tesla semi. Remember, remember Tesla semi truck back in 2017? Elon said, hey, it's going to be ready. It's going to come out. And then it didn't. And then the next year, he said, hey, it's going to be ready. It's going to come out. And then it didn't. And then, it, hey, it's going to be ready. It's going to And, you know, the story. And so uh, they produce 36 of these. As best we can tell, they can haul potato chips uh, roughly 17 feet. Uh, no, it's that's that's a little too harsh. Um, but they've produced 36 of these. I think as far as I can tell, only Pepsi has bought them or been donated them. Because why would you pay for these things? I don't know. Uh, and they've been recalled twice. All 37 vehicles. So the current one is the electronic parking brake valve module could malfunction and move into the park position when the parking brake is activated. Wait, that sounds like a good thing. I, I don't understand this one. What's happening here? Even Michael doesn't understand. He's like, wait, and I, I sent this around. Yeah, I don't even know if that's a... Um... There's only... Let's see. No, I don't know this one. This is a... <laughs> This is a voluntary. Recall. That doesn't make sense. Yeah. That, that that explanation. Basically, there's a non-compliance here. So, when your door closes, That's it's a separate one. Yeah. Okay. It's gonna it's gonna tell you whether or not there is a door open, right? Whether the door is fully latched or not. And in this case, if the door is open, it's it's not doing that. So it's not compliant with FMVSS. Right. Okay. Well, the Tesla Semi. All Teslas, remember, are semi. <laughs> semi done. 
Samma. Ah, come on. All right. Moving on to Hyundai. The Hyundai I 2022 Hyundai Ionic 5. Uh, roughly almost 40,000 of them. Uh, the problem is loss of motive power. Motive power? That's an interesting one. Uh, many consumers report a loud pop noise followed by a warning displayed in their dashboard and immediately experience a loss of motive power uh, and bowel control. Uh, that ranges from a reduction to a complete loss of motive power and requires a quick trip to the laundromat. Um, anyone? I, I, a loud pop followed by the engine stopping. I, I, I don't know what to say. Uh, yeah, and these are, these are EVs, the Ionics, right? Yeah. 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 And this is an investigation that's is looking into. So they've had, they've, they've had 30 consumer complaints on a, you know, a relatively new vehicle. And this doesn't look good at all. I mean, it's a, you know, you don't often get a pop before a loss of motive power. That's somewhat unique. Um, although it does sound similar to the, some of the Hyundai Kia engine problems, which, which are unrelated completely because those weren't. Right. Right. So yeah, that's, that's a scary, I, I don't understand really. They've had 30 complaints of stalling in these various, you know, this 30,000, 40,000 almost population of vehicles. That's pretty severe, and the fact that NHTSA is having to open an investigation here versus Hyundai saying, yeah, we have a problem, let's f- fix it, um, is a little troubling. You know, you, you, I, I, especially since Hyundai and Kia have both recently been through the loss of motive power and stalling that occurred in their bad ice engines. You'd think they learned their lesson here, but um, I would expect them to comply fairly soon. It's just odd that NHTSA had to even open in this investigation. There's not not a lot of electronics that are designed to make popping noises. And usually the electronics that are designed to make popping noises are sitting on your counter in the kitchen, making popcorn. This is, (laughs) this is just a ridiculous situation. Hmm. Well, given uh, NHTSA's recent track record, this investigation should be over by 2031. Ford is recalling a potential number of units affected, almost a million nine hundred seventy-nine thousand. Blah blah blah. This title I think is funny. It's head restraint instructions missing. Ford is recalling certain 2018 to 2023 Expedition and Lincoln Navigators. Equipped with third row seating and 2019 to 2023 F Super Duty F250, 350, 455, 50, and 600 Super Cabs and three passenger front bench seat. Basically, they're missing part of a manual for uh, how a head restraint works. Look, as somebody who's actually read their entire car manual from cover to cover, I don't remember this part of the head restraint. Yeah, I think they just, you know, these are pretty basic instructions that just tell you how to adjust and remove the head restraint in the center seating position on these types of seats. So it's a relatively small recall uh, in, in terms of, you know, the the potential threat. You know, I, we know how many people actually read their owner's manuals. It's very low. And, you know, it's but it's important that Ford gets this information out you know, to owners for a lot of reasons. One of them is they are reducing their liability and can point to this in, in case there's a crash and someone alleges a an issue in a center seat. Um, but, you know, this is 
we were just I just brought this one up mainly just to point out that, you know, not all recalls involve a massive safety failure or a massive, you know, or a bunch of crashes or anything. This is basically a noncompliance with um, FNVSS 202 that requires manufacturers to provide instructions on how to operate those darn head restraints in your vehicle. This is a uh, the copier was out of paper problem, more or less. Or, or you know the the fo- the uh, person creating the publications just happened to miss that one head restraint out of the you know six other head restraints or more that are in these giant trucks. All right, moving on Nissan, which looks like a Friday afternoon problem. Twenty twenty two Nissan Sentras. Uh, it's 230 vehicles. They estimate all 230 of these vehicles have this problem. Affected vehicles may have a missing or improper seal in the driver's side cowl. Uh, during heavy rain, there's prob- possibility of water getting in there. So I'm giving the fact this is a small number of vehicles. This is Friday afternoon. Let's all leave the factory in Tennessee and go get a beer. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, they want it to be a small recall, but how often does, I mean, I'm not missing a cowl in my vehicle and the, my driver side, uh, floor gets wet frequently, particularly when it snows and another time. So maybe the solution here is not putting electrical components in areas where there's bound to be water at some point. Um, and maybe this is a recall that should be much larger. I mean, I, I just, I can't get around the fact that they're putting electronic components unshielded, unprotected from the um, conditions, you know, right under the spot where your icy, snowy feet are going to go in the winter. Right. Water gets everywhere in cars. There's there's no way to keep it out of everything. This must just be for, you know, uh, again, really poor design, as Michael pointed out, but the electronics should be designed to be resistant to the kind of water that you're going to find because it does get everywhere. There's no way to keep things hermetically sealed in a car over its lifetime. Seals wear out, uh, parts warp, enclosures warp. This is, uh, again, inexcusable. I agree. You know what also is inexcusable? Not going to autosafety.org, clicking the donate button. Inexcusable! Come on. Don't need much from you. Just a little bit, a little, just a little, little sugar, little taste. Come on, people. We can do this. Uh, I have a last recall, but Michael didn't provide a link to it. So I'm just going to read off what he wrote. BMW sudden acceleration. Bad right. machine interface. When turning at slow speeds, the driver may re-engage. So, uh, so this one's kind of interesting. We, you know, we, the, there are a lot of sudden acceleration complaints that come in um, to NHTSA and that we receive. And, you know, this one was is it's interesting to see a recall on on this issue because you rarely do, because most manufacturers point their finger back at the consumer and say, you know, you hit the wrong pedal. And that's true a lot of the time. So sudden acceleration, sudden acceleration investigations or recalls and recalls are complicated by the fact that people do hit the wrong pedal. And they do claim after the fact that they didn't quite fervently in many cases. But on the other hand, we have circumstances like Toyota sudden acceleration and possibly Tesla. There's still kind of an open questions in our mind about what's going on um, in the NHTSA investigation there. Here, BMWs come out and say, hey, look, 
we screwed up when you're turning your wheel at slow speeds you can nudge the cruise control back on and shoot off like a rocket so this is kind of a uh, human factors problem that they've discovered um, after these cars have gone on the road and drivers have started uh, running around in them that sometimes people are nudging their cruise control on and the vehicle's accelerating uh, quite rapidly. So that's a problem and it's good they're fixing it. That's impressive because when I was also shopping for my $100,000 BMW, um, I noticed them being a little more humble than the Mercedes dealers. There wasn't any dirty cherubs with their face pressed up against the glass. Huh. No beignets. Know. Yeah, no, no beignets. It was, uh, it was a, a lot of, uh, schnitzel and, uh, insert name of other German food here. You Trudel. know, if you want to, um, if you really want to make beignets, just go buy the Pillsbury, uh, flaky biscuits and cut them into little pieces and fry them in oil, shake them in powdered sugar. Boom. Just as good as a beignet with half the work. And can I get that, uh, that flaky biscuit from my local Piggly Wiggly? Absolutely. This show not brought to you by Piggly Wiggly, but Hey, if Piggly Wiggly is listening, we mention you way too much. Piggly Wiggly and Ferrari, two people who are not sponsoring two corporations. No, they're corporations are people not sponsoring us, but should. Beignets from Piggly, excuse me. Beignets from Piggly Wiggly, definitely a southern southern aspect here. Mm-hmm. And angioplasties brought to you from Mount Sinai. With that, that's another episode of our show. Thank you so much for listening, listeners. Thank you even more for donating. So if you donated, I'm th- you feel that little extra thank you. That's for you. For everyone else who just listens, it's it's thank you. Yeah, you know, good attaboy. Yep. Thanks. <laughs> All right, we'll be uh, back next week uh, as we start season two. Because you know, I, if you're, I don't know what seasons are in podcasts. I don't get that. But yeah, next next week will be season two. This is the end of one full year of there ought to be a law. Ah! <laughs> Thank you, <laughs> listeners. It's been a pleasure. Michael, you want the hat? For more information, visit www.autosafety.org.